Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, January 17th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Before I moved to Hawaii, I knew uh, very little about the ocean. We moved when I was going to be a sophomore in high school. I moved from Arizona to Hawaii. We don't have a lot of ocean in Arizona, especially in Scottsdale, Phoenix area. Uh, But in Hawaii, I got to befriend that 71% of the Earth's surface that I didn't really know too much about. I would go to the beach with my family and friends, uh, including this beautiful black sand beach of Kalapana, Uh, It was an amazing place on the island that I went to high school. 1990, the lava flow eruption covered the entire beach. Nowhere to be seen again. But in high school, I started getting into marine science. And I had a couple classes in school. And uh, I even got to go to a summer uh, marine science program on the island of Oahu for uh, about three weeks. Or got to even uh, be out where they have submersibles and all kinds of cool things. It was during these marine science years that I first learned about the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench is the deepest part of the world's oceans. It's located in the western Pacific. It is just off the coast of Guam. It's south of Japan. It's east of the Philippines, north of Papua New Guinea. What's amazing about the trench is how incredibly deep it is. Burj Khalifa in Dubai of the United Arab Emirates is the world's tallest skyscraper. It measures an astounding 2,723 feet in the air. Denver, Mile High City, is located at 5,680 feet. The Matterhorn, uh, the one actually in the Alps, not the one in Disneyland, is... 14,690 feet tall. And here is a graphic to show you how each of those three measure up. Now, Mount Everest, located in the Himalayas, is the world's tallest mountain. It clocks in at a towering 29,029 feet. Many commercial airlines will fly at an altitude of 33,000 feet. And here how those two things measure up with the Matterhorn at the bottom of the graphic. But the Marianas Trench is a whopping 36,069 feet deep. Just let that graphic sink in a minute. Deeper than our airplanes normally fly. Did I mention it was the deepest place in the earth? Welcome to the second week in our sermon series entitled The Gift of Forgiveness. And to some, forgiving those who have hurt them is about as close as going to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. I mean, it just seems light years away and almost impossible to imagine. Today we're going to talk about why we forgive taking a closer look at the biblical foundations of forgiveness. And hopefully at some point in the morning, it'll be different for each one of us, but we'll hear something that will be a word for us, for each one of us. Some message about this, about forgiveness, that God's going to use to touch each one of our lives. Every week, we, along with Christians all over the world, pray a prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. It got its name because some of Jesus' disciples said, hey, teach us how to pray. We don't know how to pray. And so Jesus taught them 
some words that you can say. And among those words in the prayer are these lines. And forgive us our trespasses, or if you grew up in a different church, debts or sins. Jesus knew that we needed daily forgiveness as much as we need daily bread. But then he adds this follow-up part and says, as we forgive those who have trespassed or sinned against us. Another way of interpreting this passage is, as we also have forgiven, meaning that we're asking God to forgive us the same amount that we have forgiven others. Immediately following the Lord's Prayer, Jesus adds this as a postscript. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ouch. The more we look at various passages from Scripture, the more we discover that God wants us to have a spirit of forgiveness. The problem is, is that too often we foster the opposite. We foster an unforgiving spirit. But God is all about reconciliation and grace. And I can't think of a better text to focus on this morning than Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant that Lisa read for us. If you have your Bibles, you want to bring them back out or grab the pew Bible in front of you or take out your phone and pull up your Bible app, we're going back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. Now, I know I've preached on this passage already once in my short six months here with you. It was back in July. But if With your permission, I'd like to re-examine it again, especially in light of the topic of forgiveness. Now, the two verses immediately prior to this, Peter and Jesus start on a discussion about forgiveness. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And, And Jesus Or Peter isn't just talking about some kind of crazy morning driver cutting him off on the way to work going down below, right? That just drives you crazy. No, he's asking for forgiveness for people within the church, people that he knows, people that should be wanting the best for us, but somehow still manage to hurt us along the way. It happens even in the best churches. Peter wants to know a specific number. How many times? How many times do I keep giving this person forgiveness before uh, I keep getting burned over and over again? And so he throws out a number, seven. I mean, this is way beyond the three strikes and you're out, right? He's, He's going above and beyond, thinking that Jesus will probably say something like, whoa, seven, whoa, 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 that's a little, you know, dial it back a little, maybe five or, or six if you're really good. But no, Jesus says, you think seven is enough, How about take that seven and multiply it by seven? And then you'll begin to see the idea that you can never forgive someone enough. And then he tells this story. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, for starters, this isn't a story about some homeowner who's got a lot of house servants and is super rich and lives up on the hill. No, this is a story about a king. In fact, one commentator used the phrase an oriental sultan to describe this person, a la Aladdin, maybe. Who knows? The word slave was often used when referring to administrators or officials. So this very well could have been not just a servant, but someone who was an official over a provincial or state government. 
I mean, these are people that had very high-powered and prestigious jobs. And so this king, or, or sultan, decides to conduct an annual audit and see how uh, the business affairs of his country have been going. And he discovers during the accounting process that, one, maybe the satrap of a wealthy province has mismanaged the king's resources. Perhaps he's found to have embezzled and, and increased uh, an immense amount of tax revenue. It, it happens, right? All the time. Verse 24. When the king began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, for us to really get into this story, we have to be, be able to wrap our head around the amounts that we're talking here. A talent, one talent, was the largest monetary unit in biblical times. One talent was equal to the wages of a regular person's job over 15 years. Right? Just imagine, a regular worker, 15 years' salary, that is one talent. 10,000 was the largest number that they had back in biblical days. Uh, so you combine the two, you have the largest monetary unit and the largest number that they could think of at that time. And it's kind of like today when kids say, I bet you a gazillion dollars, right? Like you can't really measure a gazillion dollars, you just know it's way more than anyone could possibly have. And actually, to put it in a a little bit of perspective, um, scholars estimate that the annual income for all of King Herod the Great, King Herod who ruled Palestine in Jesus' time, all the income that he brought in from all of his area would be 900 talents a year. 900 talents for the whole Palestine. This guy owes 10,000 talents. This is a very, very serious situation. When the king began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So it's obvious that restitution is not possible. The king could have, by rights, executed the guy right on the spot. That would have been in the legal ramifications. But no, he instead decides to make an example of him and to inflict a far more degrading and protracted punishment sending him to debtor's prison. So the man, his wife, and their children would be put on the block, sold into slavery, and whatever they worked off would go back to the man with whom everything was owed. Debtor's prison also led to much sexual abuse. So, life as this man and his family knew it was now, for all intents and purposes, over. They would never go back to life as usual. Verse 26, so the slave fell on his knees before the king and said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This is where the comic relief comes into the story, right? There's no way ever he could repay all that he owes. It's a gazillion dollars, right? It's impossible. If the official worked 40 hours a week for 150,000 years, he still would not earn enough to pay back 10,000 talents. I've said it's beyond calculation, but if we tried to put it into a monetary perspective today, 10,000 talents would be estimated at $1.5 billion. So think of it as like winning this last week's Powerball lottery without having to split it three ways and without having to pay taxes. That is how much this guy owed. There is no way he could repay the debt. 
And yet he says, have patience with me and, and I'll pay you everything that, that I owe you. He's just trying to do whatever he can to get a little bit more time. He's begging for his life here. And then something amazing, in fact, unthinkable happens. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. I'm going to read it again just to allow the impact of that to settle. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. The servant says, give me a little bit more time. I'll be able to say, you know, make payments to you. And the guy instead completely forgives his debt. It's canceled. It's wiped out. It's eliminated. It's gone. It's an amazing turn of events. And all he had to do was what? Ask for it. All he had to do was ask, and it was given. Now, he doesn't understand what he's just been given. Robert Capon writes, Unfortunately, the servant thinks that his master is actually responding to his ridiculous offer for repayment. He assumes that the king is not only a bookkeeper interested, in solely, uh, interested solely in money, but also a stupid bookkeeper who can't spot a losing proposition when it slithers up to him. The king opts for grace. For reasons entirely unto himself, he cancels this amazing debt. He ignores the nonsense about repayment. He makes no calculations about profits and loss. He simply forgets the debt ever existed. $1.5 billion. Now, we're going to go back to the start of the parable for a moment. Jesus said, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So we know this is a God story. Right? This is a story about what God is like. This is the heart of the Christian message of God's grace and forgiveness and love for us. When Jesus got to the end of his earthly life, when he had been arrested and condemned and sentenced to death, he had been tortured and abused and scorned and humiliated. He was stripped almost completely naked. He was utterly vulnerable and exposed. He's hanging on the cross. His life is slipping away from him. At this moment, Jesus prays the prayer, saying to God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus asked for forgiveness with the whole world against him. He intercedes on behalf of God for forgiveness. Not just to forgive these people here, the ones that had a hand to play in my crucifixion, but we Christians believe that when he was on the cross, Jesus' act, his sacrificial act of love and sacrifice brought forgiveness for all people, those who had gone before Jesus and all of us who would come after. Each one of us, you and me, are completely forgiven because of Christ. God is in the reconciliation business, the restoration business. God is not into retaliation. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, The Seeds of Heaven, puts it this way. It's a matter of understanding that you have already been forgiven. That someone to whom you owe everything, your life and breath, your blue eyes, your fondness for fresh tomatoes, your pleasure in the moon and the stars, all the loves of your life, someone who has given and given and given to you and who has gotten precious little in return has examined your enormous debt in great detail and knows from your credit rating that chances of repayment are nil. Someone who knows all of that has taken the stack of IOUs and torn them in two, balancing your books in one fell swoop for one reason and one reason alone, because that someone wants to remain in relationship with you and wants you to be free to respond. 
There's an interesting scripture passage in the Old Testament from the prophet Micah. Micah lived at a time of transition when Israel was going from being in control to being controlled by others. And Micah and a few other prophets in the Old Testament predicted what was going to happen. They also said the reason it's happening is because we as a people have been unfaithful to God. We haven't upheld our end of the bargain. We haven't been uh, worshiping only him. We haven't kept our hearts the way we needed to. But, Micah says, in the end, God's forgiveness and restoration will also come. So in the very last chapter, the last three verses of the book of Micah, we find these words. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the, remnant, of the remnant of your possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency or mercy. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I love that last sentence. God will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. God takes our faults and our failures, our missteps and our mistakes. He takes what we've done to betray and belittle others, especially those near and dear to us. And in short, he takes everything that we've ever done that does not bring him glory and honor, and he casts it all into the depths of the sea, down into the very bottom of the Marianas Trench, 36,069 feet below sea level. If will ask. If we'll ask. So back to our story, verse 28. But the same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. So this government official, who's just been forgiven $1.5 billion on his way out the door, sees another official that owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wage, so 100 denarii, 100 days wage, that's like, what, three months salary. That's still a significant amount if that's what you make, right? It, to give three months of your salary away to someone would be a lot, but it could be paid back if you did a little at a time. This guy, though, wants it now. And to put it in perspective, 10,000 talents are equal to 50 million denarii. So he's been given, forgiven 50 million, and he asked for 100 from the other guy. I find it striking that Jesus didn't say that this guy demanded the money. He says that the servant grabbed the other by the throat. It makes me wonder, what, what happened in his life, in his upbringing? What, what, what broke in his heart? How had he been hurt so badly that this is his go-to, to react with violence and anger and bitterness? Verse 29, then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, where have we heard that before, right? It's the same exact words that he just said to the king himself. The only difference is that this servant's debt probably could be paid off over time, not the ginormous one that he had just been forgiven. Verse 30, but he refused. And then he went and threw the second servant into prison until he would pay, uh, pay the debt. Now, he had the legal right to do that. If people don't pay back, you could put them in debtor's prison. But how soon he had forgotten what had just been given to him. Well, this didn't go well with those around him. Verse 31, when the fellow servants or slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. I love it how it's a fellow servant that turn him in. I mean, they know the atmosphere of grace and mercy that they live in. They know what the king is like, and they know that the king would not like what just happened. And sure enough, the king pronounces judgment on the unforgiving servant. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. She writes, He gets thrown in jail until he can pay his debt, which amounts to the rest of his life. But his imprisonment is a technicality. The wicked servant was already behind bars, bars of his own making. By refusing to be forgiven and refusing to forgive, he had already created his own little Alcatraz, where he sat in solitary confinement with his calculator and kept track of his accounts. And Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, why do we forgive? We forgive because we have already been forgiven. So much. An amazing debt. Incalculable by God. We have been forgiven, but if we fail to forgive others, if we who have been freed from our sins insist on binding other sins to them, then we miss the incredible power of what forgiveness truly is, and we miss God being able to work in us and through us. It's Capon who writes that in heaven there are no perfect people, only forgiven sinners. There's no good guys. None of us deserve to be in heaven. Heaven is simply made up of failures who have died to their sins and have been raised to new life by the king. But also in hell, there's only forgiven sinners. When Jesus asked for forgiveness on the cross, he didn't just single out a specific group or say, only those who believe in me will be forgiven. No, he asked forgiveness for everyone. And so the gates of hell cannot remove God's forgiveness from us. You see, the only difference between heaven and hell, Capon says, is in heaven, God's forgiveness is welcomed and received and passed on into others. And in hell, it's blocked and refused. When we fail to forgive others, we are, in effect, rejecting the forgiveness God has for each one of us. Almost a decade ago, in 2007, Sean Penn directed a movie called Into the Wild. It was based on a true story uh, of young Christopher McCandless. McCandless was a top student. He was an athlete at Emory University. He graduated in 1992. And upon graduation, abandoned his possessions, gave his entire $24,000 savings account to charity, and started hitchhiking to live in the wilderness in Alaska. Along the way, he encountered various individuals, including a lonely leather worker, uh, Ron Franz, played by Hal Holbrook. And Ron offered to adopt and sort of be a grandfather to Christopher. And in this scene, towards the end of their time together, Ron is talking to Christopher about his past. And and in the time they've spent together, he realizes there's something that's holding him back from embracing all that life has to offer. Let's watch this pivotal scene. I am. I want to tell you something. From the bits and pieces I've put together, you know from what you told me about your family, your mother and your dad. And I know you got your problems with the church too. 
But there's some kind of bigger thing we can all appreciate. And it sounds like you don't mind calling it God. forgive your love and when you love God's light shines on you it may sound simplistic friends but it's true we can forgive others because we have already been forgiven by God First John reminds us we love because he first loved us. And in the process of forgiving others, of loving others, God's light shines upon us. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, not by any means. But healing comes to us especially and to others when we forgive. Next week, we're going to talk about how to forgive those big hurts, those really deep wounds that all of us have Maybe not to the same extent, but we all have those big ones. In the meantime, may we recognize just how deep our Father's love for us is. Thanks be to God for the challenge and the opportunity to forgive.